morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you in the house. Well, we are still celebrating our 32nd anniversary. It's just fabulous. I mean, every day I get up thanking God you kept us. Thank you. And there are so many people who have been with me in the journey. And uh, thank you for hanging in here. Thank you. I came here in 1982 to help establish this church. I was 21 years old. My primary responsibility was to reach out to Howard University and establish a campus ministry there. From that base, we would then bring our students together from Georgetown, George Washington, George Mason, an American university, and form church. And there were campus ministers at each one of those spots. There were 12 of us in all that came here in Washington, came to Washington. <clears throat> and God birthed something. In 1991, the senior pastor left and gave me the congregation. At that time, we were 75 people. We had... Um, Decreased because we'd gone through some troubles from 180. That's the largest we ever were in the 80s. And when I got it in May of 1991, um, I skillfully led it to 53 <laughs> by August. So in three months, I had decreased the church by about 40%. And it was a tough time. Um, not complaining, just giving you a report. But God has done something really, really wonderful. And for that, I'm grateful. And so we like to take time to reflect and have an entire month where we celebrate our founding and our keeping. Because without God, we wouldn't be here. I don't know that there is a message that talks more about our makeup than the one I'm going to preach today. Not so much about our vision or our mission, but our makeup. We're going to stay in the Beatitudes, and the title of this message is Making Peace. Making Peace. A passage is going to be taken from Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Matthew 5, verse 9. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Lord, help us as we study. Two things upon which I'm going to concentrate. One, that we are called to be treaty enforcers. And then we are called to be title holders. Jesus said, you're going to be blessed if you take up the task of making peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. And... Peace is something that must be made. It doesn't just happen. There's a recipe that must be put together. There's a, there's a strategy that must be enforced, must be put into play. God has a prescription that allows people to become those who are at peace with him and peace, at peace with one another. But it's got to be made. Now, People will confuse peace with the cessation of conflict. But that's not God's goal. Sure enough, it includes it. But peace means healing, forgiveness, restoration. It means to be restored back to the original purpose 
so that there is not even the hint of what caused you to be separate. This is the context of peace. It's not what it means in the Greek, but it's the context of what peace should be. And generally speaking, peace is not that which can be uh, best, best arrived at by just taking something off the shelf and making it happen, meaning throwing a couple of scriptures at folk and say, get it right. Paul said in his desire to help people be at peace with God, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 <clears throat> through 20, he says, we are new creations in Christ, and the old has passed away and the new has come. Now all these things are from God, who is reconciling us in Christ and, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, verse 18, verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation, not counting men's trespasses against them. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, making an appeal as if God were working through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, Paul had been given a download. He understood that it was his responsibility to minister this gospel to people that knew God not and to bring them into relationship with him. But he, he wanted the Corinthians to understand how it happened. He said, before, before people ever understood that they needed to be right with God, God understood he needed to make them right with him. And he, all by himself, initiated the process of reconciliation. The one who was most offended decided to reach out. Oh, we are always wanting to find peace in conflict, but we are usually, if we are the offended, waiting for the other person to come and say, I'm sorry. God did not wait because he realized if he kept waiting, it would never happen. We didn't have the maturity necessary to come on our own initiative and say, I'm sorry. We kept running in the opposite direction. Adam, where are you? God came looking for him, knowing he had blown it. Be offended became the one who initiated the process. And maturity in your life is reflected in the fact that when you are hurt the most, can you be the one that gets over it and tries to restore the other party to you rather than waiting for them to restore you to them? Are you listening to me? God made reconciliation all by himself. Namely, that he was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We couldn't do it on our own. We couldn't find him on our own. He said, I'm going to do it all by myself. Sent his son. Jesus lived a perfect life. Sinless. Thought right. Spoke right. Acted right. Perfect. Nobody had ever done that before. He lived so right that everybody who was living wrong hated him. He was the guy that turned the lights on in the party at 2 a.m. <laughs> Everybody's dirt was seen. Jesus shined the light in their darkness. And they hated him so much, they said, stop it. And if you don't, we're going to kill you. And indeed, they did. But the only reason somebody was worthy of death, death is if they sinned. Jesus had never sinned. So when death took hold of him, because he was not worthy of the penalty, death could not hold on. And so he conquered the chains that held all of humanity that had ever passed through life into death. 
He conquered those chains and broke them and then rose from the dead because he had never done anything worthy of death. As a result, he became the substitutionary penalty taker for all of our wrongdoing. We call it propitiation. He died the death we should have died. Because he was living a sinless life, then he could not let death hold him. He got back up, and as a result, he gives us the life we cannot get on our own. So he takes our death and gives us his life. It is a wonderful exchange. And this is how we become new creations in Christ. We can't recreate ourselves. All the reformation tactics, all the, 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 the new behavioral modifications we try to put into play, we, it doesn't work not to become new creations. We are actually transformed on the inside by accepting what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and allowing him to live through us. God decided they can't help themselves, so I will help them. And he came and reconciled us to himself. Now, our job then is to try to figure out how we can deal with this ministry of reconciliation that comes with being right with God. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them, verse 19. And he has given us the word of reconciliation. So when you get reconciled, you immediately get a ministry. You get a word to speak to somebody. Your job is to tell other people about Jesus. You're looking for your ministry? That's it. That's it. Until you get something else more defined, that's what you're supposed to do. And if you get something else more defined, it's in addition to, not in place of. Your job is to minister to people. It's not dependent upon how much you are called, whether you can make a vocation out of ministry. It's just loving folks and doing what God did for you to somebody else. Letting them know how he loved them and cared for them and what they need to do to get right. Somebody loved you enough to do it for you. Your job is to get that message out there to somebody else. It's got to be, peace has to be made. But as I said in the beginning, it, it, it's not just made because you take a couple of scriptures off the shelf and then thrust them at somebody. It's got to be a part of you. Now, if anybody could have just thrown some scriptures out and said, be responsible, you're supposed to do this, do it. It could have been Paul because he wrote them. Yes. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. If anybody could have just used a few words and say, do what I say or else, it could have been him. But he says this in verse 20. Therefore, <laughs> we are ambassadors for Christ as if God is moving through us on your behalf. We implore you, we beg you, be reconciled to God. Paul throws himself in the message. All y'all can tell the difference between a box cake and one that's homemade. Every one of you. I love Betty. I love Betty. I mean, it'll do in a pinch if you want something sweet. Duncan Hines, great. But you can tell that somebody just threw some stuff in with a couple of eggs and milk and threw it in the oven for 35 minutes and popped out a cake. That, you just taste it and you go, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm, yeah, it's good, it's good. Good job, good job, good job. But then when you get something that when you taste it, it kind of, it's, it's moist and it, it does something in your mouth. 
it kind of melts and, 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 and begins to take over all of the cavern of your mouth. It, your taste buds just And when you're at a party where you taste a cake like that, you look at your plate and you say, why did I get such a small piece? <laughs> and then you, you, you figure out where the table was, where the rest of the cake is. And you gravitate your conversation over by the cake. And when people say, how's the cake? You say, terrible. <laughs> terrible. Go get the pie. The cake is terrible. You can tell the difference between a box and something that's homemade. Paul's message was homemade. He didn't just take a couple of scriptures and say, do this. He said, I'm begging you. He threw himself. My mama used to say when something was really good, you put your toes in that. That did not mean <laughs> that you actually put your toes in. It meant you threw all of your being into this dish so that somebody could benefit and say, wow. That was Paul. I beg you. I beg you. Be reconciled to God. And that's the recipe that we need to, to follow if we want to make our cake of the gospel taste right. Are people responsible to repent any way it comes? Yes. But do we want them to do it in such a way that it's not arduous? They don't have to jump over us and our insensitivity and our bad attitude and our, our intolerance and our self-judgment? No. We're responsible to get this message out. Jesus said, if you, if you will be a peacemaker, help people get right with God, help them make peace with God, you're going to be blessed. Blessed. Secondly, we're called to make peace with one another. And this was Paul's second ministry. He was called to evangelize, and that he did well. <clears throat> but he had this insight about having Gentiles be incorporated into the church. Now, I know it sounds strange, but the entire church for, for about the first decade was 99%, 99.9% Jewish. They had a Jewish Messiah, born from Jewish mama and a surrogate Jewish dad. He was sent to the Jewish people. All the first disciples were Jewish. The first church was Jewish. Pentecost happened with Jewish people. People that came to Jerusalem from other neighborhoods on the day of Pentecost were saved, but they were all Jewish in their origin, even though they were from other countries. Everything was Jewish. Everything. That's the way God started. They came from Abraham. God gave the promise to Abraham all the way through Jacob and his kids and the monarchies, through David. The Messiah was coming, and it came through the Jews. So I don't fault the first church for thinking that this is primarily a Jewish thing. Where you fault them is thinking it's only a Jewish thing. And this is the fault all of us can get into. That when God treats us so well, we begin to think only. We don't think primary. We don't think in addition to. We think God's interested in me because he treats me so well. And that's where the Israelites got into trouble. Rather than primary, they thought only. Paul got the information that we Gentiles were to be incorporated in this. Now, Peter also got the information, but it came hard. It came hard. Peter had been 10 years now, when we see him in Acts chapter 10, 10 years in the church, leading the church in Jerusalem. And he's sitting in a fellow's house, a friend of his, and he goes up on the roof because the guy's a tanner, and a tanner is a guy who cured leather in order to make it into something. 
took the animal skins and made it pliable and workable. And you had to use, <laughs> I always try to keep it PG, but you had to use um, byproducts of animals to make this happen. So the house smelled nasty. Nasty. So he said, I'm going up on the roof to eat lunch. Literally, that's what happened. I got to get out of here. This smells too bad. So he went up on the roof. And as he was on the roof, all of a sudden, he fell into a trance. And a, a sheet came out of heaven. And he heard this voice say, get up and eat, boy. And in this sheet, lobster, ribs, shrimp, chitlins. And he said, no, I have never eaten anything unclean, oh God. Now, you're bold when you can tell God no. You're bold when you can tell God. God says eat. He says no. Sheet comes out of the sky, same thing. No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Third time, say, Lord, no. He says, don't you ever call anything unclean what I call clean. Now, I want you to go out and minister to these Gentiles. Oh, he was whacked upside the theological head. He didn't know what to do. He thought, oh, my goodness, the Gentiles are supposed to come into this thing. And the Gentiles represent this, us, everybody who's not a Jew. So he finally got it. But by, he, by the time he had gotten it, Paul was doing this. He had been on the backside of the Arabian desert ministering to people for a decade, trying to get them right. And he had gotten this information, though he had not yet submitted it to the, to the leaders in Jerusalem because it seemed so strange. And, and Paul was a Jew, and he wasn't quite sure how he would be received ministering to Gentiles primarily because nobody was ever doing that. He got the information that the Gentiles were, were to be incorporated. We were to be grafted in as substantively, substantively as the Jews, that we weren't second-class citizens, that we were just as equal as they. And this is why he was able to say, in God, in Galatians, there's no Jew or Greek. Ooh, do you know what the Jews thought of that? Wait, 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 wait. You say Abraham, being a seed of Abraham doesn't matter. What you, what you trying to say? Mad. Pride because of their heritage. But he was saying, listen, God always had in mind the Gentiles. He just tried to work through you Jews first. Always had in mind us. He wanted to reach the world. For God so loved the world. Written by a Jewish apostle named John. God so loved the world. So, in Ephesians, he's working with the church at Ephesus. And, and they got issues because building multiculturally is hard. It's not easy. I mean, take, for instance, a simple thing of doing a potluck dinner. You got these Jews that have never eaten a pork rib in their life, never had the joy, <laughs> never experienced the happiness of sucking on a rib till the bone is clean. And here come these Gentiles bringing in lobster and all kind of stuff. And they're thinking, in the church, how do we, how do, we do a potluck? This ain't working right. And like the, the Jews would sing all these hymns. That were right in scripture. David wrote this. Yeah. Asaph wrote this. This is holy. And then the Gentiles would bring in. Oh happy day. <laughs> Who wrote that? Who? Give, give Some patriarch? Did a patriarch write that? No. Antoine wrote that down the street. 
He just, he just came up with that last week. You can't bring that up in this house. It's not in the Bible. You get my point. I'm making stuff up, but you get my point. How do we do church with these different mindsets? It's hard to do multicultural. It's so hard. And Paul said this. God called me to this in, in Ephesians chapter 3. And, and, and in Ephesians chapter 2, he said, he called me to break down the dividing wall between the two in verse 14. And he says in chapter 3, now you can understand somewhat my mystery, this mystery of Christ, and my insight into this mystery and the stewardship that has been given me. That it's my responsibility to make known to the people that the Gentiles are to be fellow heirs incorporated into this covenant. And that somehow or another God is going to make known his, his manifold wisdom to the principalities and powers through this church that he's trying to create. Now the word manifold there is a word many colored. It's in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament Hebrew. It's the word that is used for Joseph's coat of many colors that Jacob gave him his dad. And so what Paul is saying here is that when we get Jew and Gentile together, that there is a many colored picture that begins to develop that proclaims about something about God's wisdom and how he wants to construct his church in the earth. And that how people ought to be in his blueprint, joined together even though they didn't grow up together. Different backgrounds, yet same vision and mission about where they're going. It's hard building like that, though. Because you've got to deal with all kinds of expectations and desires and preferences and undercurrents about the way people think church ought to go and what they're not used to and what they're used to. It's easy, much easier to build monoethically than it is multiethnically. And it's not the people who build monoethically are somehow less than or that they're doing something that's not as, as, as noble. Oh, I'm grateful for every church. And in Korea, they build with Koreans. There are very few places like ours whereby you have an eclectic people from every nation under the earth. In Mexico, they build with Mexicans. In Japan, they build with Japanese but we are all one people here. We're not one anything here. So what in the world do we do with the idea of building something that looks like our community? How do we make that happen? It's hard. And it'd be easier in my, in my context to go with people who look like me. Because you can, you can say certain things and black folk just get it. <laughs> they just get it. Like, ladies, hot comb. Every black woman knows what I'm talking about. Even the black men who never had one put to their head know what I'm talking about. All the white women say, hot comb, what, what, hot comb. What's a hot comb? Hot comb. Before they had curling irons. See, see, black people have nappy hair. Nappy means it's tight and curly. What is nappy not politically correct? Oh, y'all got mad at me. <laughs> Goodness gracious. My mama called me nappy-headed every day of my life. <laughs> nappy-headed boy. <laughs> Grow up. All it means is little curls. Little curls, tight curls. That's what black people got. So if you see a person with straight hair, they didn't come out that way. 
they did something to make it happen. Which is why I so appreciate the black women, because they work so hard every day just to get out the house. <laughs> just to get out the house. They don't make clothes that fit them. They don't have makeup. I mean, they work hard to get out the house. Hot comb. Before they had curling irons, they'd have these combs that had wooden handles and yet a metal comb, very thick, just iron, just flat iron. And, and because you didn't plug it in, they didn't, we, we didn't have that technology, you, you'd heat it up on the stove. And, and while it was heating up on the stove, mom would put oil in the baby's hair. Just oil it up real good. And so I, I know this because my sister, my mama did it to my sister all the time. And, and just before the comb got red hot, they'd pull it off the stove. And then they'd take it because heat can take out wrinkles. They'd take it through the daughter's hair. And it would just, <laughs> and then smoke would rise. <laughs> now, whenever I smell burning hair, it reminds me of home. <laughs> and all I have to say to a black person is hot comb. We go, mm-hmm. <laughs> One word, hot comb. It's easier to build with people who have common experiences. And you, wherever you came from, if you're not African-American, you have things in your culture. One word, and you can identify with somebody. You look at one another and say, yep, I know what you're talking about. Everybody has that. But to, to build multi-ethnically, you've got to intentionally cross bridges. You've got to go to somebody else's other side in order to figure out what, what is valuable to them. What's important to them? And they cross a bridge to come to you. So in the way we present who we are, we don't have a choir with robes. And we don't sing forever and ever. I don't hoop. Not talking about basketball. <laughs> I don't hoop. I preach in a way that is conversational rather than rhythmic. Because I, our, our goal is to present something that's different than what's most comfortable to me. Because I'm called, as Paul was, he says, I, I, have to be, I have to become everything to everybody that I might win some. I'm called to reach people that are not like me. Paul said, that's my job, to become what I need to be in order to reach people that I normally could not. We intentionally choose to build like this because God has called me. I can't do any other. He put in my heart when we first started this church, to ask him for something that looked like heaven rather than me. And so we labor to make sure that whatever we do, it's multi-ethnic in our orientation, much like when Jacob had been cheated for 10 years out of his wages by Laban. Laban was his uncle, and Jacob had run from his brother Esau to his uncle Laban because he had no place else to go, and Laban gave him a job. But Laban cheated out of his wages 10 times for 20 years. And then God gave him a strategy. He said, I'm going to give you some of Laban's flock, but Laban will never give it to you. I'm going to give you the ones he does not want. Spotted and speckled sheep. Nobody wanted spotted and speckled sheep because the wool came out gray. You couldn't do much with it. You wanted white wool that could be put into different kinds of colors with dye. But gray wool, nobody wanted. So nobody, the spotted and speckled or black sheep, you put over to the side. Not because they were less attractive, but they didn't have any economic benefit. 
So God said, I'm going to give you all the sheep he doesn't want. Every time you bring your sheep up to the water and have them drink, you take some, some branches, poplar branches, and you, you, you strip them of their bark, and you cut them up, and you plant them at the watering hole. And every time the sheep come to drink, they will look at this variated colored poplar branch, number of them. And, and when they walk away, they'll beget spotted and speckled sheep, though they were white. I was a biology major. It doesn't happen like that. It doesn't happen like that. But by the end of a period of time of three or four mating seasons, Jacob's flock was larger than Laban's. God gave him his due, but he had the strangest looking flock in the world. Thousands of sheep, all of them spotted and speckled. And everybody would say, you did that on purpose. You didn't weed out those genes so you could have some, some wool you could make something with. Nope, God gave it to me just like that. And we are a strange people. You won't find this many places, especially with a black pastor. You'll find it with a white pastor. But you won't find it much with a black pastor. Because the distance that a black pastor has to go to appeal to a white audience is much further than a white pastor has to go to appeal to a black audience because black people live in a white world all the time. Did you hear what I said? White people hardly ever venture into a black world. And so we do what we can here, not just to appeal, but to become all things to all men so that when a white person comes in, they, not ju- they don't just say, Ooh, that's, that's beautiful. That is wonderful. That's exciting the way black people worship. Ooh, it's just so nice. It's exciting. It's, it's vibrant and they're loud and rhythmic and ooh, it's great. And they're excited about it, but they go home. There's got to be something about our expression that says you can stay. You can call this little black man your pastor. We work hard at that. So when you see here, when you come to this watering hole, you see spotted and speckled branches that allow you to believe you can actually produce what you're not. We work hard. (laughs) Lastly, we're called to be title holders. When you have the attitude of what it means to prioritize being a peacemaker, when you, when you live with that, then you, you get the benefit of a couple of things here. Jesus said, when you're a peacemaker, you'll be called the sons of God. The word called, there is a word kaleo in Greek, which has two wonderful applications that are very context, contextual here. One is that you get an invite. He calls you. When you choose to be a peacemaker at helping people get right with God and with one another, you get an invite. He says, come close. You're identifying with me in ways like most people will not. I call you to get closer to me. Special. Secondly, you are called a son of God. Son is not gender specific. It's inheritance oriented. The son was the one who inherited the resources from the father. When you are a peacemaker, you get, you get in line to receive an inheritance you would not have otherwise. Oh, it doesn't mean that heaven is not yours if you don't peacemake. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you if you don't peacemake. But when you do, there's a special inheritance for you because he's given you a new name, a special 
kind of designation within his family that allows you to get something others do not. And remember, generally speaking, most of the kids got all the same thing, but there were sometimes those who were favored differently. And let me tell you something. Favor is not fair. It's not. It doesn't mean that God loves somebody more than somebody else, but it does mean they may have made some sacrifices. They may have done some things that that allow them the privilege of coming into an inheritance different than everybody else. Favor is not fair. It's just not fair. And I want to get as much unfairness as possible. As much unfairness as possible. Poor English, but it works. Be a peacemaker. Because if you do these things and you practice them, not only will people benefit, they'll know God, they'll love each other more, But you will be blessed. You'll be so blessed. You'll walk away thinking, Lord, I helped you today. And it's amazing that you could use me to help you with anything because you're so much better at everything than I am. But you chose to use me. Thank you. I am so blessed. Let's pray. God, I'm asking your grace and mercy to be upon everybody here to understand something about what it means to be a reconciler, a peacemaker. Help them to prioritize well.